0: The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlawry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket pre to live events, monthly Q and A's with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you.
1: Hey there, John, how you doing? Hi, Glenn, how are you? You look great. Straighten that up. You look (laughs) great. I'm fine, Glenn Lowry here. This is The Glenn Show. I teach at Brown University. I'm with John McWhorter. Every other week, we have a conversation. Uh, We're the black guys. John teaches at Columbia. He writes for the New York Times. So we're talking, John. What's up? Um, I want to ask a
0: question? Yeah. Why are we supposed to mull so extensively over Kanye West's facile anti-Semitism? This is something that I real, I genuinely don't understand. And you know, I understand the significance of anti-Semitism. I understand that <laughs> you could argue that it's on the rise, but When somebody says that they admire Adolf Hitler, or that Adolf Hitler is somebody (laughs) where you might want to consider that there were good sides to him, which, you know, presumably there were, but to even bring that up, the idea being that we give Hitler too hard a time, when someone says that, it seems to me that they're dealing so much in the realm of the ridiculous that... I'm not sure why smart people are sitting around musing over the nature of what he said and what it indicates about the history of anti-Semitism in this country, et cetera. And yes, I know there's that, That here I am with my naivete, that sports figure whose name I forget, who also, you know, His name
1: so. is Kyrie Irving. Right, yes. He plays for your hometown team, the Brooklyn Nets. Uh, it's <laughs> shameful how little I know, but I know that <laughs> a person like that, did that. And so
0: Kanye West is an undereducated person. He is something of a megalomaniac. And he obviously likes to get a jump out of people by saying terrible things such as, you know, supporting the Confederate flag. Why are we encouraging him by paying him so much attention? What am I missing
1: here? Okay, well, you started out, I thought, asking why we, that is you and I and people like us, are asked to react to Kanye West, because, uh, you know, we're black, right? And because I think those who ask us to respond are both anticipating a certain censure. Mm -hmm. Kanye West doesn't speak for all black people. He's a nutcase. He's an undereducated, whatever. And he's an anti-Semite. They're anticipating that we would censure uh, him and that we would reassure them uh, that uh, although uh, Kanye West is black, uh, we, the Black guys, uh, you know, don't stand with him. We 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 denounce him. I mean, why is uh, Louis Farrakhan, I mean, from a time past, a similar kind of, you know, he would say something anti-Semitic and then people would be asked to denounce Louis Farrakhan. I kind of recall um, Hillary Clinton asking Barack Obama during that campaign of 2008 to denounce uh, Jeremiah Wright and by association to denounce uh, Louis Farrakhan. So I think that's that's part of the reason, but uh I think you're asking the wrong guy about why people are so sensitive, why our Jewish brothers and sisters in particular, why the anti-defamation league of Bene Brith, um, why prominent uh Jewish public figures would uh react with great alarm when, uh, a black celebrity says something stupid, says something ridiculous, says something anti-Semitic. Um, and I mean, I don't want to answer for them. My, my best speculation would be nip it in the bud. Uh, that's the kind of talk, which when not confronted immediately and vigorously, you know, uh builds into uh, more and more publicly expressed anti-Jewish sentiment, which translates at the end of the day into violence and uh horror. Uh and we Jews, I again I don't speak for such people, but I'm imagining can't afford to let that kind of talk go by unremarked. The last time we didn't look carefully, horrific consequences ensued.
0: Maybe I'm understanding because I understand that you want to have control of of the conversation. Certainly when people make certain kinds of statements, you want to make sure that there's some sort of general agreement in the public that this does not represent standard opinion and that these are ideas that we'd like to suppress as much as possible. With Kanye, though, it just seems like what he's expressing is so cartoonish that I wonder why anybody would worry that it would be taken seriously. But I guess what I'm missing is that They're worried that maybe a certain kind of person, perhaps, you know, usually a lonely young male, might listen to him. Like, is the idea that Kanye West is an influencer as opposed to somebody who almost everybody thinks of as a buffoon? I didn't know at this point that he had a fan base listening to him rapturously the way Donald Trump does. And I should say as an asterisk, I think he, his music is fantastic. That's not the point.
1: We're talking about the person. John has uh, stepped away for a moment with a connection issue, and he'll, he'll be back. Um, and I don't want to neglect to underscore that there are uh, anti-Semitic attacks uh, ongoing, uh, some perpetrated by um, uh, inner-city Black uh, people in Los Angeles and New York and around the uh, Around the country. I'm just commenting, John, in your momentary absence mm-hmm. to get on the record our acknowledgement of the fact that um, our Jewish brothers and sisters are not crazy. There really are anti Semites. Sometimes they push right. people in front of subways or they cold cock them when yes. walking on the sidewalk or whatever. And uh, often these are Black people, uh, and presumably some of them listen to Kanye West music and watch Kyrie Irving's moves on the basketball court. And so our Not implausibly thought to have been influenced uh, in some respects by the comments of these errant comments of these celebrities. I mean, I I gather that uh, the Hitler comment got some affirmation with the signage above the 405 uh, freeway in Los Angeles of people standing on an overpass with signs saying um, Hitler was right or words to that effect. I don't want to misquote, so please excuse me if I don't remember it exactly. Was this in support of what Kanye said or, or a separate event? Who can say? I, I don't know what motivated those people. It happened after the Kanye controversy and in the wake of the reaction to it. Okay, so you I'm might learning imagine, here. All right, I'm imagine. learning. So in other
0: words, I am missing the extent to which he is an influencer. Because my feeling was not, why are Jewish people so oversensitive? That wasn't the issue. I, I get it. I get the sensitivity in general. But with this Kanye stuff, I thought it's this cartoon character with a you know, got a mask on his face saying utterly ridiculous things. Who's listening? Then again, maybe I'm overestimating the, the well, nature
1: of the public. Dave Chappelle is listening. I, I don't know if you saw that opening monologue that he did for SNL a few weeks ago. I have ago. now. Yeah. Uh, I'm not saying he agrees with Kanye's anti-Semitic statements, I, I don't put that on Dave Chappelle, but I do say that when I heard that monologue, I came away from it thinking, he thinks the reaction is overblown. He thinks Kanye West is no threat to the Jews. Uh, he thinks the Jews do sometimes act, excuse me, put that all in quotes. I'm I'm paraphrasing Dave Chappelle here. I'm not speaking on my own account. Are sometimes um, Uh, uh, paranoid in in their reaction against these kind of matters and that they are powerful and influential. He says, I've been to Hollywood. A lot of Jews, A lot. That's Dave Chappelle. I'm quoting him. Uh, So uh, I think his reaction, this is Chappelle's reaction, is not Dissimilar to that, that many people and many African-Americans, uh, Stephen A. Smith, the sports commentator at ESPN, who uh, comments on basketball, uh, had a long defense of Kanye. He condemned Kanye's uh, not responding to the owner of the Nets when the he was confronted about his public, his retweet of the uh, anti-Semitic um, um, video. Uh, But he said uh, that he thought it was uh, an an emasculation of Kanye West, the list of demands that the owner had put before him, before his, uh, not Kanye, I'm sorry, I beg your pardon. The other guy. Mm -hmm. The other guy, uh, this is Stephen A. Smith. This is just another kind of center of the road, black public uh, commentator whose reaction was not, you know, without a certain degree of, of uh, ambivalence uh with respect to the condemnation. You know, yeah, yeah, anti-Semitism is bad, but A, uh the uh black celebrities who might uh give some voice to some of these thoughts are are not really uh a, a threat to the Jews. And B, the overreaction of uh, the um anti-anti-Semites uh is uh Uh, something that is a problem in its own right. Um, I think a lot of people think that. I'm learning here. It's, it's, if somebody
0: went onto Alex Jones's show and said similarly cartoony things about black people, right, Right. I think think my, you know, including, you know, slavery wasn't so bad, blah, blah, blah. My first impulse would be, who's taking that seriously? Who cares? We have bigger problems. The, The planet is about to burn up. But then again, OK, there are people who would be listening to that who are not crazy, who might think, OK, it's open season for expressing some of maybe the more temperate but still disgusting views that we have. I need to understand that there are many ways of being a person. I'm a little bit disturbed by a tacit sense I, I, I get. From all of this, that a lot of our black brothers and sisters think that this anti-Semitism has to be seen in a particular lens when it comes from us, because it's okay for black people to be racist to an extent. And I have said with you, I can understand the idea that there's something different about white people despising black people and black people despising white people. In a different language, you could have different words for the same thing. But I get the feeling there's a kind of an advantage being taken of that because the idea is not that it's okay for black people to resent white hegemony in general, but it's okay for black people to nurture a vague, ungrateful, rather unreasonable, and superannuated animus against Jewish people as 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 Interloper pushy people who ran stores in our neighborhoods and didn't let us work in them, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of this is rather antique. You know, what what is it, you know, that that would create this? And there seems to be an idea that we're supposed to be allowed to nurture things that tacky because we're black and it's okay because we're oppressed. I'm I'm not loving that. We have no reason to not like
1: Jewish people.
0: It, it doesn't, it, it 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 it's anti-Semitism.
1: Uh agreed. Um a hundred percent. I mean, let's stipulate. Were someone to go on a TV show or a prominent platform on the um internet and pronounce slavery wasn't that bad, they wouldn't be getting book contracts from major publishing houses. Their TV show would be canceled, uh, their record distribution network would dry up, uh, et cetera. Their careers would be, sent careers to would be ruined, they would yeah. they would become Personas non grata, and uh, why should it be any different for anti-Semitism? I think a person could very reasonably say. So, um, I I I have no problem with uh, the uh, sanctioning of uh, people who spew hatred. Now, <laughs> I, I saw the basketball player Kyrie Irving interviewed. Uh, he was asked by reporters. Uh, to, you know, react to the reactions to his remarks. And he said um, he could not possibly be an anti-Semite. Knowing who he is, he said, I know who I am. It's impossible for me to be an anti-Semite, which I interpreted as him asserting, I'm a Semite. That is, I am a Jew. Because that was the substance of the dispute. The dispute was, you know, about who are the real Jews, these Black Hebrews who uh, allege that They are the true descendants of the biblical uh, Israelites. Uh, And I understood him to be saying, I know who I am. I'm a Jew. I can't possibly be a Jew hater. I'm a Jew. Uh, Is that claim, that claim in and of itself, anti-Semitic? Is is the conspiracy theory, quote unquote, the fanciful belief, uh, the imagined history that uh, And I know something about this coming from Chicago. I've said this here before when I visited Israel and traveled to um, Eilat uh, in the south of the country and drove through the Negev Desert and saw the amazing ruins, ancient ruins at Avdat. Amongst the experiences that I had was stopping to get some water and take a rest in Demona and meeting Black American immigrants to Israel from Chicago as it happened who were coming home, who thought of themselves as coming home. I don't know if they had legal authorization to enter the country or to remain in the country or not. I somehow doubt it. But there they were. I mean, there were families. Um, I know a little something about this because my uncle Alfred, um, who was not himself a member of the sect of, of Black Hebrews, nevertheless agreed with their claims about Uh, the relationship to the biblical Israelites of African-Americans were to have been their descendants, a lost tribe or some such. And uh, I heard this uh, from him, and I thought it was kooky and and weird and, you know, never subscribed to that doctrine myself, but it was not unfamiliar to me. Is that person an anti-Semite? You know, I... Okay, I mean, I I don't want to debate words with people, but do we mean the same thing by anti-Semite when we refer to him as we mean when we refer to somebody who's a, a member of the American Nazi Party?
0: Um, There's a certain kind of person
1: who would just say immediately, yes, it's
0: anti-Semitism, but frankly, with all due respect to that kind of person, that is a little unreflective. If you're going to really think about where people are coming from, you can't paint everything with that same lexical item in in that way. I mean, this Black Hebrew thing is just a sign that, you know, I am often saying that we need to think of ourselves as human beings and therefore as people who adapt to our current circumstances and not as an an eternally broken people. But with something like that, what you see is such a brokenness. The idea that Black American identity isn't enough, that because things are imperfect here, that there are people who don't like us here. We have to fashion a sense of ourselves as valuable in some exotic, distant way. We have to be some sort of sect. And so we have to connect ourselves to this land where we don't speak the language, where we don't belong there, where we're really, we're making up a story just like Mormons are. It's a shame. You know, nobody who grew up in Senegal would subscribe to that. You have to grow up in Chicago to subscribe to that. It's that rootless And I wish people would let it go and just allow that your roots are here in the United States, as imperfect as it is. And if you think that the United States is this sociological cesspool, then go spend about two seconds in Beijing or just about anywhere else, and you will realize how far we have come. Frankly, even Paris. Just go somewhere else and see what the nature of the racism conversation is. So that's what that is. Now, is it anti-Semitism in the same vein as Kanye West, or the kind of person who sits around talking about how Jews are pushy and have too much money and control, you know, control the media, et cetera? To me, those are different things. Um, I think we're talking about different problems. But I know there are many people who would say no, and you know, I think the the discussion would just have to stop there, in my experience.
1: Let me mention a couple of things. I that occur to me. Comparative victimology. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if you're in the business of using your historical victimization as a trump card in politics, then uh, that invites a, a competition between groups about whose who's victimization is the more mm-hmm. profound, whose victimization is the more inhumane, uh, is the more morally uh, dastardly. So we have slavery. And we have the Holocaust and we have the contemporary American politics. And I imagine in some quarters, the question of, you know, was slavery worse than the Holocaust? The Jews are doing quite all right. Take a look. They're rich. They're powerful. They're in many positions of influence and so forth and so on. The blacks are lagging behind. Eh, You're making way too much of the Holocaust. I'm tired of hearing about the Holocaust, that kind of talk. I can see where that might make a uh, headway in some uh, quarters of American society. Uh, some of it fueled by this sense of uh, moral outrage at uh, the group's own victimization and this wanting to compare and compare in a way favorable to oneself. Uh, but some of it fueled just by jealousy, just by envy, by uh, seeing the differences in the uh, uh, positions of, of the respective groups and resenting the success. Um, And that uh, factoring into how it is that these battles about history play themselves out. um, I expect that in many quarters of the Black uh, community, and I would include some of the intelligentsia in this, identification with the plight of the Palestinians and a kind of uh, anti-Zionist geopolitical uh, predisposition. Uh, inclines people to talk about the Jews uh, in ways that, you know, uh, will be perceived as uh, anti-Semitic. I, I don't think opposition to Zionism is ipso facto anti-Semitism. Some people do. I many people I think you can make grew. a distinction. I think you can make it. Many Jews oppose Zionism. Many people so, refuse to make a distinction there. Yeah. But um, but I do think uh, that, <laughs> that those things can be cousins or uh, distant kin one to another that the the one opposition to Zionism can foster the development of another an uh, opposition to Jews more broadly. Mm-hmm. Um, Chappelle said something that I thought, although he was tongue in cheek, was, was probably right. He says there are two words you should never put together. If you want to succeed in life, the and Jews, he says, I found that anybody who says those words, bad things happen to them. Mm-hmm. And, You know, okay, so that's a joke. Uh, But it's not entirely a joke because people like Kyrie who run around talking about the Jews or like Kanye, who says he's going to go DEFCON 6 or whatever on, quote unquote, the Jews have faced a lot of headwinds as a consequence of their of their behavior. Um, On the other hand, the use of the concept, the Jews, is kind of problematic, isn't it? I mean, in the sense that you don't you impute when you say that to an entire class of people in virtue of their Jewishness, uh, a set of beliefs or a set of uh, a goals or ideals, you you presume of them a collective uh, consciousness that uh, that uh, is uh, you know disrespectful of the individuality and the and the heterogeneity amongst the population. I mean, who are quote unquote the Jews? You know, so. I can understand. I mean, if people went around talk about the blacks, you know, the blacks this and the blacks that. I mean, you and I would be at the head of the queue objecting to that uh, to that kind of characterization. So, I, yeah, I can respect that.
0: Although it's a there's a subtlety to it because Jewish people say the Jews in some context, Is it good for the Jews? And that is considered a a warm in group thing to say, including a a kind of a Facet presumption that, that there is a cover sense of what a Jewish person is. But yeah, it's dangerous to use it from the outside. I certainly don't feel that I have the privilege to say the Jews, but it's an it's an in-group thing. You know, my problem with a lot of today's discourse, and sometimes I wish I were maybe a political scientist so I could back all this up with more data is that I think the slippery slope argument is vastly overused, and it may be partly that I lack a certain imagination. Maybe I'm one of those Jewish people living in Germany who was highly assimilated and couldn't imagine what Hitler was going to pull, but I don't think so. I think that as history moves along, and especially as history is ever more available, think about how this will sound if we have some sociological cataclysm, but you know, we've got an internet. we've got such wide discussion. It's not just in books and magazines anymore. I don't see people saying tacky things, even in the plural, as a sign that it could happen again. You know, everybody always brings up the Sinclair Lewis novel. It can't happen here. We're supposed to we're supposed to be vigilant. and and yes, never forget. I understand. You're not going to forget the Holocaust, and you're not going to forget slavery and Jim Crow. But I have been a little perplexed at some things I've read where because of Kanye West saying that and Kyrie Irving saying that and Donald Trump sitting down and, you know, having 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 dinner with an avowed anti-Semite. And in fact, too, that all of these things together suggest a growing drumbeat and that The nation might be united against Jewish people in the way that has happened to many, many Jewish people in the past, that it could happen here and we need to be vigilant. There's always a part of me that thinks, no, it's not going to be that bad. It seems to me like certain rather unenlightened people are saying things that we're more likely to hear now because of social media but that life will pretty much continue as it is. And I know that there have been, you know, mass shootings in synagogues, et cetera, but the idea that that would become a regular occurrence, that that would happen, you know, all the time, I don't see it any more than I see a grand, you know, groundswell against black people in the United States. You know, I don't see us going back to the race riots where white people ran into black neighborhoods and blew things up. It seems to me that history progresses slowly, but it, progresses, and moral history progresses. Certain things are not going to happen. Am I naive in, in that sense? Uh, like, what are the examples in modern history of going backwards to that extent? And now I'm going to get really parochial. Here, Canada, Australia, England, maybe some places, but what? what
1: like where we are, yeah, I wasn't in um Berlin in 1928, 1930, 1932. I can imagine many people would have had a similar reaction to in in the in that context to concerns being expressed about rising antisemitism. Uh so I mean I think the answer has to be you don't wait until it gets that obvious because by then it's too late. You you nip mm-hmm. it in the bud. You 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 react quickly and Definitively against every uh inkling of uh you know expression of uh, uh anti-Jewish antipathy, um, and you fight it uh from uh from the jump. Um I want to say this. I don't think Donald Trump is anti-Semitic. I, I I don't see any evidence that he's anti-Semitic. What I think he is is <laughs> reluctant to denounce anti-Semites uh because he is cultivating a sympathy uh, for uh, himself through a constituency that uh, respond to some degree positively to these anti-Semites. And maybe there's no difference between those two. Trump, uh, when he was president, a lot of people said was good for Israel. He moved the embassy. He recognized sovereignty in the Golan Heights. He developed these so-called Abraham Accords Uh, His daughter is married to a Jewish person. His grandchildren are Jewish. She's a convert. How's he an anti-Semite? But uh, when he invites uh, Kanye West and Nick Fuentes to sit down with him at Mar-a-Lago for dinner, uh, he has to know that they're anti-Semites or believed to be anti-Semites by a large number of people. He has to know what he's doing. Uh, And in doing so, he... You know, he shows himself to be Donald Trump. I'm not defending him uh, against being a, 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 a man without principle with respect to how it is that he pursues his own political interests. But I don't think he's an anti-Semite. Uh,
0: he doesn't prioritize anti-Semitism. It's something he doesn't care about, basically. I would, I would venture that. I mean, frankly, why would he have any particular feelings about Jewish people or frankly, much of anything at all. But he does not prioritize rejecting it. Whether someone is an anti-Semite or not does not figure in his affection for them. He, he's, not, he's not that advanced.
1: I remember uh, the Farrakhan controversies of the 1980s. I remember when Jesse Jackson was running for president and he got caught. Ah, uh, by some rep- in in what he thought was an off the record conversation, referring to New York City as Jaime Town. This is Jesse I remember Jackson, that. Jesse Lewis Jackson. Mm-hmm. We're going back thirty five years or more. Um, and uh, Farrakhan made some fiery public statement, and he called Jews insects or rodents or something. He 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 said, uh, you know, when Hitler puts you in the oven, kind of talk like that. I mean, you know. I I can't quote it exactly. It wouldn't be hard to find. Uh, About the African-American reporter for the New York Times, whose name I don't recall now, who revealed Jesse Jackson's uh, airport lounge casual statement. I'm going to Jaime Town. I got to meet with Jaime. This is Jesse Jackson, 1984, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, And uh, Farrakhan said of that reporter, one day soon we will punish you with death. That is a quote. Farrakhan said these things. So these things needed to be denounced. And, um, you know, I denounced them. I denounced them in the pages of The New Republic, where I was a welcome contributor at that time. (laughs) Uh, And I didn't mind denouncing them because I thought they were reprehensible. Uh, On the other hand, I must say, I did chafe at being asked to denounce them. I mean, shouldn't it have been taken for granted that I denounced them? why was it necessary for me to declare a position vis-a-vis these statements? This is how you open this conversation by asking this question uh, about uh, Kanye West. Um, and, you know, I, my loyalty should have been taken for granted without needing to be demonstrated by me denouncing Louis Farrakhan. And oh, by the way, Louis Farrakhan may may well be an anti-Semite, but I tell you what, he is much more of a threat to me, a Black intellectual public figure, denouncing him than, than he is to you, a Jewish person walking down the streets in New York City. So my denouncing him is not without its own consequences for me. But nevertheless, okay, I agree. I denounce him. Hi, this is Glenn Lowry. I'm here to tell you about Policy Genius, I'm a man in my seventies. I know I don't look it, but there you are. My wife, my lovely wife is in her fifties. I need life insurance. It's very important to give her the security that she deserves. We all hope we'll never need life insurance, of course, but mortgage payments, child care, and other expenses don't disappear when we're gone. Life insurance through your workplace may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it won't follow you if you leave your job. Since life insurance typically gets more expensive as we age, now's the time to buy. Policy Genius gives you a smarter way to find and buy the right coverage for you and your family. I had term life insurance at my job until I entered a phased retirement program and I am now in the market to acquire a policy. I am going to make use of Policy Genius in doing so. Policy Genius was built to modernize the life insurance industry. Their technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from top companies like AIG and Prudential in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. With Policy Genius, you can find the life insurance policies that start at just $17 a month for $500,000 of coverage. And Policy Genius has licensed agents who can help you find options that offer coverage in as little as a week and avoid unnecessary medical exams. They're not incentivized to recommend one insurer over another so you can trust their guidance. There are no added fees and your personal information is private. No wonder they have thousands of five-star reviews on Google and Trustpilot. Your loved ones deserve a financial safety net. You deserve a smarter way to find and buy it. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you can save. That's policygenius.com.
0: Yeah, this is... um. It's a... Casual black anti-Semitism that I think it's hard to miss if you grow up black in certain cities. Um, that's what I took Jesse Jackson to be expressing. It's almost this badge of in-group membership that you you pretend to have this problem with with Heine, which always struck me as something historical, although awkward given the role that so many Jewish people played in our own civil rights movement. It's always, to me, that was always... The uncle who you hope only to see at Thanksgiving. It's, it's something you kind of keep keep hidden. And now I'm just being thrown because I always thought of it as a kind of an in-group act because human beings like to have somebody to pretend not to like if there isn't somebody to not like for real reasons. That's our in, That's our inborn tribalism. Now, certain people are reflecting it, manifesting it, and it's being put under the banner of anti-Semitism as a national evil. And I'm I'm just working to understand it. Because for me, it always just struck me as this raggedy little act that I hoped, you know, wouldn't get out too much, and that somebody like Jesse Jackson let slip in front of that reporter. But I get it. I get it. I need to recast this and and pull the camera back.
1: Did you remember? Port- do you remember Warren Beatty's um Oh by, oh, by the way, I mean, I think it's in- interesting that some people can kind of get away with saying certain kinds of things. So Mel Brooks's uh, 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 Springtime for Hitler. You, what was that? You know, uh, that was uh, in the, the producers, the producers, the producers mm-hmm. which was a big hit on Broadway and whatnot. And, you know, but the movie what was makes it 1960s, funny no. is, right. is it's playing around with some of this stuff. Um, I was thinking of Beatty's uh, Warren Beatty's uh, Bullworth. You, mm-hmm. you remember that? Uh, he's a. Yeah. I don't remember um,
0: much about it except for the famous line about how we'll just, everybody will be fucking and fucking and fucking, and then we'll all just be one color. And that <laughs> for some reason, Halle Berry was supposed to find him attractive.
1: I don't remember much of the rest of it. He's a U.S. senator. He's running for reelection. And he has a, a come to Jesus moment where he realizes the whole system is corrupt. And suddenly he, you know, and he he pays a mafiosa guy to 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 kill him so that uh, his his family can collect the insurance. He's kind of suicidal, but but he doesn't want to just take his own life because he doesn't want his family to be impoverished. So a hitman is out there. And since he knows his death is imminent, he's completely unrestrained in the kind of stuff that he says. So he goes to a black church and he tells the congregation, if you don't put down that 40 ounce malt, malt liquor and those uh, fried chicken bones and stand up straight and figure out where your political interests are, you're always going to be led around by the nose and you're always going to be back at the queue. And he goes to a fundraiser in Hollywood, which is full of a lot of Hollywood types. And he says, well, your movies are really bad, aren't they? I mean, when are you going to make a good movie again? Uh, I I guess it's the money, huh? Um, And then somebody in the audience stands up and says, well, what are you doing coming out here to insult us? And he says, "Uh, my people told me I have to go talk to the big Jews if I want to raise any campaign finance. You know, I mean, he says that in the movie. Okay, I got to go talk to the big Jews. Um, What makes that funny? What makes that funny, it seems to me, is that you can't, you know, you can't say it, except, you know, it's true. (laughs) It's kind of true. So that was Chappelle. That was Chappelle's closing uh, uh, move in that monologue where he says, oh, I hope nobody gets me. I hope I don't get into trouble. I hope they don't come for me, whoever they may be.
0: You know, Uh, it's fun. I think of two things when you mentioned that. One is that I'll bet that that movie couldn't get made today because people would pretend not to understand the jokes. People would pretend not to understand that this was um this was meant as satire or that this was meant as careful exploration of what are sometimes unfortunate truths. You couldn't make the movie it would, because we now pretend not to have any sense of wit or layer. The most intelligent and influential of us pretend not to understand ambiguity and indirection. It's hard being in this country in some ways sometimes. And then I also think, I remember going and seeing that. Remember when that was the typical thing that was in a movie theater? And this is a very quick sideline, but remember when that was the main thing and not these Marvel comic book things? Yeah. It's at the point where you don't go to the movies as much, or at least I don't, because every second movie is made for fourteen year old boys, even if it's with good actors and even if there's some clever things said now and then. Remember when Bullworth was what was in the movies? Yeah. I, I'm I'm getting old, I'm sorry, but I missed that time when you would go to the movies to see that, as opposed to, you know, the Avengers. But
1: alas. So uh. You have my agreement. I'm I'm in my 70s. What can I say? I, I am old, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I do remember when they made other kinds of movies, which don't seem to be not much, as many uh, in evidence anymore. Yeah. Uh, okay, let's talk about something else. Yeah. What else happened? What hmm. are you writing about these days? Probably music. I don't read your music columns. So I apologize. <laughs> you don't. You don't. Find those is interesting,
0: no, yeah. I had to let go of the race thing for the past couple. I don't want to only do that uh, in my column. I don't want it to be every week he you know says something about wokeness or you know says that racism is being exaggerated. I'm gonna do that a lot, but I'm not gonna do it every single week. I don't want to be one of those people where people stop reading me because they already know what I'm gonna say, and I really do think about other things and so. The one that I just dashed off that I guess will appear in a couple of days is about the death of cursive and how I don't think there's anything wrong with it. And gosh, Glenn, uh, I have to remember last week I did something about music um, and what I wrote. Oh, last week I, I wrote that the Broadway music is just getting too damn loud. Talk about getting old that the idea is to assault <laughs> you <chronically laughs> And that that is part of what makes it good. That what you're Part of what you're supposed to enjoy is that it was so loud that it wrenched your bowels. And I just find it, I find it crude. You know, my complaint was not stop hurting my ears with this loud music. My ears don't hurt. It's that I find it really crummy art. It's along the lines of that Bullworth is a much less common kind of movie now than it was. It's just a, damn it, it's a coarseness in the culture. Broadway is too damn loud and you go to the movies, and all you get is, you know, Iron Man, and you have an intellectual and artistic culture that pretend not to understand ambiguity and wit and indirection. We're living in a very crude time in, in many ways. You, you can feel me writing a column as I, as I speak, but yeah, yeah, there's some things I don't like, but the last two have not been anti-wokeness columns because there is more to life than that.
1: Have you seen Wakanda Forever? Not yet. Speaking of Marvel movies. I hear it's pretty good. You know, it has to be seen. And my wife is a big uh, Marvel fan. They're great She's dragged me to these things. This one I don't have to be dragged to. I think it has to be seen. But I mention it because it seems to me that it it bears a family resemblance. To a certain kind of fanciful uh, black-centric historiography, which imagines that the Egyptians were Black Africans, uh, that they had advanced technology, uh, that you know, uh, etc., that you know, it, it invents a kind of fantasy of Black power and and Black uh, achievement. In contradistinction to the much messier and much more ambiguous fact of an enslaved, conquered, colonized, dominated people making our way in the modern world. And of course, there's a great deal to be touted of accomplishment and et cetera, et cetera. And yes, I love black people. I think we're terrific and I think we're great. But Uh, is it not a fanciful uh, piece of uh, fiction to imagine an all-powerful Black civilization that was well more advanced in its scientific knowledge than the European heathens and so forth and so on? Uh, I I almost hesitate to say it. And uh, does that uh, phenomenon which Wilson Moses in this wonderful book, Afrotopia, characterizes, he traces the intellectual history of, various kinds of uh, imagined uh black uh, uh achievements in the past and so on uh well well back into the 18th century and says it's a it's a it's a literary type. It's it's a genre of of a sort. Um are we not seeing a latter day version of that in the uh uh instance of uh the kingdom of wakanda and that that whole fantasy it's the whole black Hebrew thing in a way. It's that, this idea what that, you know, what, what,
0: what we are isn't enough. There has to be this fantasy about the past. It has to be we came from kings as opposed to what are you now and what are you going to pass on to your kids? Maybe what was your dad, but not we came from kings. And, you know, I, I, we came from
1: kings who beat them at their own game. Kings who were not just regal, but who were masters of the universe, who had command over the material uh, environment, who who had achievements of intellectual and technological virtuosity that were every bit as great and greater than that of the Europeans, indirectly paying tribute to the Europeans, even as you uh, make up some shit about your own past.
0: And what we came from, it's, it's a fascinating development because where it really all begins is preliterate civilizations, civilizations, but preliterate civilizations that were every bit as barbaric as European ones in terms of our modern sense of what's right, including that yours and my ancestors were almost certainly sold into slavery by other black people on the coast of West Africa, not way up in Egypt, who knew full well what they were doing, and did not see all Africans as the same thing, the way we unfortunately tend to be encouraged to by thinking of Egypt as the same thing as Senegal and Ghana and and Angola. Yeah, all this is just kind of a mythology. It it all kind of reminds me of coming to America, the where Eddie Murphy was supposed to be coming from, although that wasn't supposed to be the past. But still, yeah, I don't I've never understood that. Where we came from, and it has to be this this fantasy mythology i guess it's relatively harmless but to me where i came from never i'm never terribly interested in much further back than roughly the 1890s the people who were very old when i was a kid and i admired them with their you know bl- blue collar achievement which is you know what was allowed to them in their life i had a great aunt who at 92 was at the North Philadelphia train station. You had to go up a lot of steps. She ran up those two steep flights of steps to get a train like she was 35. I've never seen somebody in their 90s move so fast. And she was sharp in that way. I have a photograph of her, and I always think, Auntie, I ran up those steps in her 90s, and it wasn't really to show off either. And it struck me as symbolic. Like, this is somebody who has lived, and the last thing she was thinking about was some African kingdom. She was thinking about North Philadelphia, where she had lived her life. And to me, that's enough. I've never understood the
1: the rest. And I guess that makes me kind of limited. But I'm living out. Excuse me for interrupting. I'm I'm just going to remark. The first thing of Orlando Patterson's that I ever read, um, it was an essay that he published in the 70s in the public interest called the Orlando Patterson, the great sociologist, Harvard sociologist, and Afro-Jamaican-American, uh, uh, an essay called Towards a Future That Has No Past, in which he identified this problem that confronts African-Americans or Afro-descended people in the diaspora more, more broadly, which is that the, the Holocaust of slavery, that break, where people are kidnapped and they're carted away and they're then blended in with all these different cultures and languages and uh, customs and whatnot. And there, Patterson goes on uh, years later to publish his great uh, treatise, uh, Slavery and Social Death. And uh, one of the defining features of slavery for Patterson was natal alienation, what he called natal Alienation, And this had to do with the breaking of bonds across generations within family lines, because the master intercedes with his property claim into the intimate domesticity of the life of the slave. Uh, and it, it's more general than that. It's losing your language. It's losing the tales of uh, oral history that tell you in a way who you are. And uh, you, you have to figure out again. Who you are that. That was the challenge that he identifies in this essay for all of us. We have to somehow develop an understanding of who we are for now and into the future that is not rooted in the same deep way uh, as it would have been uh, had not the crime of slavery interceded. and And I think that's a part of of what's going on here. I mean. <laughs> I I hesitate to say this, but it's true. Uh, We, Black Americans, are by far the wealthiest and most powerful and most secure large population of African descent on the planet. We, We have inherited, as a consequence of the kidnapping of our ancestors, a pretty good hand to play. In life relative to the uh, descendants of Africa uh, viewed in uh, in broad perspective um, we're Americans we're we're not Africans English is our native tongue we're westerners, not people of the third world um, i I think we're still struggling to many of us to come to terms with that we're Christians, not all of us of course obviously not all of us but the impact of Christianity on the culture and the uh, the emergence of, of African-American uh, society is profound. Um, I, I think that black Hebrew thing and that black Muslim thing are partly a effort to break away from the uh, Western inheritance and to kind of, you know, or the Afrocentric thing, the Kwanzaa business and all of that. Uh, So um, anyway, just some idle thoughts about uh, authenticity and um, the the roots of uh, African-American identity and culture. Our next partner has a product I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 because I was concerned about my health. My wife was getting on my case, telling me that I should be taking supplements, that I should be doing something besides the sloppy eating that I was doing and the lack of exercise that I was getting to improve my health. I wanted better gut health, more energy. I wanted to optimize my immune system. I hated taking pills and vitamins from all those different bottles. I wanted a supplement that actually tastes great. Now that I've been on AG1, I love it. It doesn't taste like it's super healthy. It has a kind of mild tropical taste that I actually look forward to each morning. So what is this stuff? With one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health. It helps your nervous system, your immune system, your energy recovery, focus, and aging, all the things. What I do is every morning before breakfast, I take my dose of AG1. Uh, It's become a habit. I've incorporated it into my daily routine. It really makes me feel better, I've noticed it abets my digestion Uh, i feel like i have more energy it's easy to pack in my bag i take it with me when i travel i use it without fail every day it costs you less than three dollars a day you're investing in your health and it's cheaper than if you uh were to buy all the supplements yourself you're investing in an all-in-one nutritional insurance now Tons of people take some kind of multivitamin, and it's important to choose one with high-quality ingredients that your body will actually absorb. AG1 is a small micro habit with big benefits. It's one thing you can do every single day to take care of yourself. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills or supplements to look out for your health, to make it easy. Athletic greens is going to give you a free one year supply of immune supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash Glenn. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash Glenn to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Glenn,
0: I wonder though, do I get what Orlando means, but do people really need that sense of rootlessness? Are people left? With a sense of something missing, when they don't have a sense of where they come from, isn't that sense of where you come from to a large extent kind of an abstraction beyond beyond a few generations back? I think of like the class I just taught, uh, a big class about 180 kids, and wow. this is been uh, Ivy League University in 2022. So that that's a rainbow class. It's, yeah. not, it's not mostly white kids from Scarsdale at Columbia anymore. It's all sorts of people from all over the place. And I think of those faces, and I think, okay, over here is a Chinese-American woman. Now, she knows she's from China, but frankly, she probably doesn't know that much about Chinese history. It's hard to. It's very long, and it's the same thing over and over again. What she knows is her grandparents. Does she— is there something that she has that we don't have because intellectually she can say that she is part of Chinese history? I think of a a, a a woman of South Asian descent, and I think of, you know, whatever her ancestry is. Does she think of herself as rooted in something in a way that you and I are missing because you can only go so far back because of this being wrenched from Africa? Then the white ones, blonde hair from, you know, Kansas or or something. You know, how far back can they go and how how much does it matter? I think we we're, we're told this that we were uprooted, we were taken from our languages, we were taken from the folklore, but how broken are we that we don't speak Yoruba and that there aren't lullabies that we were sung to that have existed for thousands of years? Isn't what a human being is really what you are right now and your extended family. I wonder if psychologists know something that I don't on that. This issue of rootedness always sounds to me, talk about movies and fantasy. It sounds good, and I'm not knocking Orlando, who I agree with 99% of the time, but is that really the problem here, or is it that we're told that it's a problem?
1: Okay, I I get it. Um, We could go with, um, oh, Anthony Appiah, you know, for cosmopolitanism. Uh, his book, The Ethics of Identity, develops arguments not dissimilar to that that you just sketched a moment ago. No, we're not simply this one thing or these few things that we get in, uh, handed from our ancestors. We are citizens of the modern world, and the modern world is complex and multicultural and m- much more interesting than this uh, kind of mono, monolithic thing. Um, but what I want to say is, ask that of our Jewish brothers and sisters. Are they putting too much emphasis on uh, a sense of nationalism or uh, or ethnic identity that is, to some degree, uh, um, a choice of adopting a certain sense of identity that they don't have to be bound by? Or, or are they not Uh, A part of a stream of uh, human aspiration and culture of religious devotion and uh, of striving of suffering and hope of literature and, you know, and so on that are the Jewish people, quote unquote. So if and I think the answer that you'll get from our Jewish friends is the latter. And if that's the case uh, for the Jewish people, why not also for the African diaspora and thus Orlando's dilemma? And maybe it's the fact that, okay, that's the sense of the Jewish people, because they have assiduously maintained the infrastructure of a peoplehood and have cultivated practices passed on across many generations in a wide variety of circumstances. Uh, that constitute the substance of their collectivity, and we blacks have not. We, we we for a variety of reasons are not a people, in the sense that Jews are a people. I don't think you can deny that Jews are uh, are a people. That that there is such a thing. Uh, it is a matter of fact. The state of Israel exists. The movement of Zionism brought forth fruit. Uh, the you know concerns about assimilation and so forth uh, affect the way that many of our jewish brothers and sisters understand themselves and 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 carry on their lives and so forth and I, and i think that fact of jewish peoplehood is something that also sticks sticks in the craw <laughs> of some of those who are going to be accused of anti-semitism um so uh, I, I, did I answer your question? Your question was, can't we just be in the 21st century? Do we have to be a part of some historical human flow? And the answer is no, we don't have to. But some of us, among whom are our Jewish brothers and sisters, many, find great solace in doing so. You're making me sad, Glenn, because
0: really... Gets into language again, a subtle thing. You'll get this, you are of exactly the age to to get this. Notice that black people used to say my people, much more. You know, my people do this, you know, my people like this, my people want freedom. That was a standard way of speaking in the black community until about 1970. I know it from movies and television and dim memories of my childhood. You know, when do you want freedom for your people? Ruth Buzzy asks um, Johnny, Johnny, the guy who played Bookman on Good Times, I'm, I'm blanking on his name, but it's on yeah. Latin. Little skit. You know, when do your people want freedom? And he says, now would be fine. And then they, they <laughs> dance. And the thing is, she says your people, and it wasn't a slur. It was because black people then often said my people. And Glenn, you know what the my people was? It was the victimhood. It was that whether you were a black lawyer or whether you were a black janitor, you had, the, you had the genuine victimhood at the hands of white policy and white sentiment. So we were a people. Once the segregation and the disenfranchisement and even the attitudes change, it becomes more fragile because the victimhood is harder to explain and often, frankly, just isn't there. And then things get kind of awkward. And so you start looking for an identity based on something, and there's where you get the exaggeration of the victimhood. Because at one time, that really was a lot of what drew the black community together, that white people hated us and wouldn't let us get ahead. Once that stops, you end up grasping for something. And I guess because we can't all speak Yoruba together, it has to be that we're still victims, and we have to insist on that victimhood even as it recedes ever further. And we have to cast out onto an ice floe any black person who actually decides to take a look at things and say, aren't we exaggerating this at this point? Isn't it time to just move on? But the thing is, we have to move on as individuals, as Americans. God, that sounds corny. But that is the challenge because a great many of us don't want to do it, which I try very hard to understand. But that's where a lot of the exaggeration of the victimhood comes in, the term systemic racism, et cetera, you, you've got to keep it going because it's the only way we know how to feel like we belong to something. That's a shame. I've never felt it, and that's what makes me an apostate. I don't want an identity built around a manufactured sense of victimhood. And yet so very
1: many people do, and they're not crazy. They're Donna, What, what do you make? Okay, I, I'm, I'm with you. What do you make of the fact uh, I, what I'm thinking about right now is intermarriage, uh, interracia, interracial, mixed-race people. I'm I'm thinking about immigration. I'm thinking about immigration from Africa, from the Caribbean, Black people who come to the country, but who have a different uh, experience and origin. And uh, we're all kind of, you know, grouped together. So the first black president in the United States is a man who doesn't have any slave ancestors at all. His mother is a white woman. His father is an African man, um, but he's a, he's the first black president. He's an African-American by, he he chooses to identify as, did he have a choice? Yeah, clearly he had a choice. It seems to me he could have played it differently. I, I don't judge him. I'm not criticizing him. I'm just observing the first black uh, Vice President of the United States is a woman, again, who has no American slave ancestors. Her father is a Jamaican man of African descent. I, I don't know if any of his ancestors were enslaved. I imagine some were. Donald Harris. Um, but um, it, this is what led me, the last time we were talking about this kind of stuff, to say that I think, you know, you give it a, three or four more generations and blackness is not going to mean anything like what it means now and it'll be much more like irishness or italianness in our uh, social imagination is today which is an, a, a kind of ethnic coloration that doesn't run very deep and that uh is not as readily separable from other stuff uh But uh, are there not forces that political payoffs to clinging to this uh, way of thinking about ourselves? Aren't aren't there not? uh, I'm very influenced by Rogers Brubaker. Brubaker is a sociologist at UCLA. He has a book called Ethnicity Without Groups, which is a collection of essays. And the lead essay of that book is also called Ethnicity Without Groups, co-authored with one of his graduate students. And uh, he says, you know, th- these identity things, he, he works a lot in Eastern Europe. So, he, you know, he's talking about Hungarians and Romanians. And so, but uh, the theory applies much more broadly. He says, you know, these things are achievements. They're, they're not given in nature. They're, they're the outcome of political processes, of, you know, the way things are framed, of, of how things get reported. Uh George Floyd, a black man, Uh, Derek Chauvin, a white cop. Chauvin kneels on on Floyd's knee and Floyd dies. Chauvin murders Floyd. A white cop murdered a black man. We choose to construe it as a racial event. It, It could have been a cop and a man. The man happened to be black. The cop happened to be white. How much race was involved in it was partly a result of the way in which we talked about it, in which we decided to react to to the event. We we made it into, to some degree, we, all of us, the media, political actors, activists, um, and so on, created race uh, in that event. Uh, Likewise, uh, the BIPOC construction, this idea about people of color, uh, these are political aggregations on behalf of projects that are fostered by interested parties who prefer to see the world this way rather than that. Um, And uh, these things are contestable. I mean, one, one could, if one has the courage and is willing to take the blowback, stand up against them. The way I do when I say I'm not sure that the killing of George Floyd was even a racial event in the first place, and yet we made it into so many of us Uh, exemplary of the character of American race relations in some deep way. Um, And I I think that's something we did. I don't think that was a natural category. I think that was a constructed uh, sociopolitical framing. Mm.
0: Why I support getting rid of the war on drugs. That police issue is such a Tough nut to crack. It's funny, ever since we first had our conversation about um, Floyd back in April of May of, of 2020, when we kind of turned a new corner. Yeah, we should link to that, and, by the way. Yeah. And, um, you know, and it turned out that that happened to Tony Timpa, the, the white guy. Yeah, that's what and I I've mean. Said that innumerable times to audiences right. since then. And you can just, you can just see that it won't compute the white people hear it and they don't know what to do because they're thinking we're supposed to be on the side of black people as allies we're supposed to think of the police as black people's enemy and here's this clear fact it was recorded you can't say that you know it isn't real and it wasn't in 1840 it happened happened to a white guy too white people just can't compute they can't they don't want to hear it and with black people it just makes to even try to have the conversation makes them angry. I did an event with um, Michael Eric Dyson about six months ago. We went to a school and we did a very friendly debate. And honestly, 90% of it made me think, wow, things have changed since about the year 2000. Because I'm saying my usual stuff and nobody is throwing any fruit at me it's partly <laughs> because I know how to say it. And it's partly because opinion has changed. But when we got to the cops, suddenly came the Donna's. I'm using this character who I created before. Yeah. I respect Donna, but now I can use the shorthand. There were Donnas in the audience, and they lined up at that microphone. Few of the Donnas were men, and they just would not hear it. And remind the audience
1: of, of what a Donna <laughs> Donna of.
0: Donna is: an intelligent, educated Black woman, um, somewhere a little past fifty who is a cosmopolitan person in many ways, but cannot hear anything but professional victimhood about blackness and is somebody who, in the right mood, can listen to somebody who has a view different from someone like Ibram Kendi's, but it's very hard to truly move her because there is a sense that to let go of that sense of victimhood is a defining part of our identity would be discomforting in some way, maybe disloyal, maybe just leave her disoriented. Maybe it doesn't comport with the facts, but she's deeply committed to that view. And she's been alive for maybe maybe a little less time than me. This is somebody whose impressions of things are built on the 1970s and 80s. She didn't live in the 40s and the 50s. Donna is a tough nut to crack. And there were Donnas at this who were mad at me for saying that We over-racialized the whole cop story, and no statistics would work. Nothing would work. And by the time the event was over, there was one Donna still at the mic, talking out of turn, clearly viscerally upset. And it wasn't a disastrous event, but I noticed, wow, when it comes to the cops, I can't beat Dyson because, you know, of course he has the usual view. And logic just didn't work. And I thought, if only we could get past this, I really do think we would have a whole new conversation about race, but wow. It's tough.
1: Yeah. Well, there are the demagogues and the race hustlers out there who who make a living off of framing these things in in that way. Dyson so. is not that. I didn't want to imply that. I don't think okay. he's a hustler.
0: Um, I think that he just has a certain way of looking at things. He and I are very friendly. And on it was all kind of a love fest until that. But Dyson did not get in trouble that night. I had a little trouble that night because of the copies. And you know, I don't think Donna is a hustler. Donna is just, there is more emotion than logic in her take on blackness and victimhood. And I find her hard to reach.
1: All right, John, I think we have uh, completed our task for today's conversation. We've gotten ourselves into trouble on the anti Semitism issue. And, you know.
0: I hope uh, you producers will clip this one carefully. Because, yeah, Uh, there are going to be people... Clip
1: this one carefully. This is almost as bad as talking about the transgender issue, which John refuses to do on camera for fear of uh, ruination. (laughs) And and I'm respecting him, even though I'm a little bit annoyed because I'm chafing at the bit to talk about the issue. (laughs) I have a mortgage. (laughs) I have small children. Mm -mm. Okay, John, uh, I'm going to stop the tape. Uh, Good talking to you. See you in a couple of weeks. You too, Glenn.